0: So the other day, someone said, I would never want to have a child or bring up a child in this world. And I was like, when was it a good time? A hundred years ago when you didn't have the medicine or medical innovations you have today? When if you were a millionaire, it basically meant you had two radios, a decent chair and polio. I will take today over 50 years ago. Hell, I'll take today over yesterday. So stop your whining, stop your crying and make babies. This is Solving Problems, and Starting New Ones. I am Nick Umbrella. The goal of the show is to be an incubator of great ideas for today's problems, and my job is to simply get the ball rolling. Your job is, hopefully, to fine-tune those ideas into something great. We'll be discussing problems in politics, religion, sports, entertainment, and other things I know nothing about and have no right to speak of. But I'm going to do so anyway. And we're going to do all this from a guy-on-the-street perspective. Today we're going to talk about the hierarchy of importance, philosophy behind the politics, and money in politics. couple of disclaimers. We're going to do three pilot episodes. Each episode will have a certain theme to help us figure out what you like, what you don't like, and for us to figure out what works and what doesn't work. And if none of it works, then I'll come up with another podcast idea. I like hearing my own voice. And you can let us know what you think by joining us on Twitter, solving problems, and starting new ones podcast at The Problem Show. And we are still trying to work on a Facebook page. I'm just learning how the internet works, what it does, and if it feels pain. Second disclaimer, this is a political-themed episode. If you do not like politics, follow politics, understand them, or are new to them, this episode is for you, because I've written it with you in mind. If you like politics, and God help you if you do, think of this episode as a refresher or a reminder. Let's dig a little deeper into what we're going to try and cover in this podcast, and at the same time, simplify what's important. We're going to talk about two hierarchies. Personal and Society. For personal hierarchy, the number one most important thing you need to focus on is health. That's mental and physical. Don't listen to what you've been told before. You are the center of your universe. And when you are not close to 100%, you will see how fast everything around you falls apart if you can't keep yourself together. If you are sick, it's tough to be a good parent. If you are overstressed, it's tough to be a good employee and get ahead. Below that, relationships. That includes family, friends, significant others, you need to keep the good people in and be very wary of the people you invite in your own world. Remind yourself to show appreciation for the good that people bring in your universe. It's very tough to get ahead and take chances with a good support system. And below that, and in no particular order, wealth, education, creativity, materials, cause we all like cool shit. Now, the hierarchy of society, the important things that go on outside your door. Number one is government. The United States is the longest-running democracy in the world. We are only a little over 240 years old, but we are the oldest. Civilization is thousands of years old, yet our democracy is the longest-running. That should tell you one really important thing. Empires fall. It could happen here in our lifetime if we don't stay focused on what's important and keep an eye on the kings and queens above us. Below that, the wars. That could be the wars on foreign countries and the war on nature. And let me tell you. When it comes to the war on nature, we've been kicking its ass for a long time. So with that being said, don't be shocked when the earth tries to shake us off like a bad case of fleas, as George Carlin once put it. And finally, and in no particular order, economy, culture, healthcare system, education, and freedoms. And we plan to dive into any and all of these as the show goes on. Now if you feel any of this is wrong, please send your hate tweets to Show on Twitter. Now. Let's get to our first segment, which is called Political Philosophy 101, a back-to-basic approach to look at what the two sides are fighting about. This is us trying to dip into that NPR fan base. We're going to talk about what liberal philosophy is and what conservative philosophy is. So what I'm going to do is take thousands of pages of philosophy and cram it into one paragraph. The liberal philosophy is a big, strong government will create a good country, which will create good states, a good community, a good family, and good individuals. The conservative Republican philosophy is the other way around. Is good individuals will create a good family, which will create good communities, good states, and a good country, with a little bit of government to push good policies and to address foreign affairs. Now, to make it even easier, I'm going to put all that into one sentence. Do good institutions make good people, or do good people make good institutions? Let's do a little critical thinking. If I say the word military, you'd more than likely think it leans towards a conservative philosophy. And you might be right, but let's question it anyway. To make a good military, does it take strong, brave, courageous people? Or is it a great institution with a storied history of respect and honor that turns out good people? Is it the institution or the people? That's not up to me to answer. It's for yourself to think about. And if I've done my job right, you definitely have an answer. When I was putting this together, I was reminded of a quote by James Madison which I know I will butcher beyond all recognition. If people were angels, we wouldn't need government. If government were angels, we wouldn't need voters. And that is Political Philosophy 101. I'll probably release Political Philosophy 102 on Twitter and Facebook to entice you to like and follow our page. All right, I need a drink for this one. Today's big topic is money and politics. We're going to talk about why it's important, how we got there, and what the hell we can do about it. So what's the problem with money in politics? In brief, it disrupts our fundamental relationship with our elected officials. In politics, there is a two-person job. The first job is for the elected official to keep our best interests in mind. The second job is for we the people to pay attention. Pretty simple stuff. But because of competition, candidates are more than willing to play favorites to corporations, unions, and the ultra-wealthy, securing their best interests. This competition of raising the most money causes a pool of potentially good candidates to dwindle down to the ones willing to do favors. Also, there's time consumption. Candidates and elected officials spend far more time fundraising and not enough time learning the issues that matter most. A report back in April 2016 said, newly elected members of the House were told they should spend 30 hours a week in the Republican and Democrat call centers across the street dialing for dollars. Now, once you feel like members of Congress don't have your best interest in mind, eventually they will lose your interest. Then we become a community of people who believe we cannot make a difference. Or to look at it another way, almost 100 million voters didn't vote in 2016. That brings us to our job, paying attention. Here's a small example. In 2016, in Massachusetts, there was an election that took place between Elizabeth Warren and Jeff Deal for Senate. Warren got 60% of the vote. Deal, 30% of the vote. Now, I'm well aware of Massachusetts is a blue state for the most part, but there was an independent candidate by the name of Shiva Ayadore. He got 3% of the vote. This gentleman moved to this country from India as a child, went from poor to middle class to finally building his own wealth. He has four degrees in MIT and a PhD. He achieved the American dream and is obviously a very smart dude. Also, he invented email. I'm not going to say he should have won. It takes time to build a name. Should he receive more than 3% of the vote? And are we paying attention? Now, to the remaining 23 listeners I have, we're going to quickly dig into the history of campaign finance laws. Or, skip forward four minutes, I don't care, it's a free country. In 1907, we had the Tillman Act. It was the first finance law passed preventing money from corporations. The reason for this was Teddy Roosevelt had charges brought up against him. It was believed he was taking money from corporations. So to save face... He asked Congress to put together a finance law. This made it okay for people to donate whatever they wanted, but no corporate contributions. That lasted until 1971. The Federal Campaign Act of 71 replaced all existing finance laws and required the campaigns to file disclosure reports of contributions and spendings. That part is still in effect today, which is why you have sites like OpenSecrets.org. That is a site where you can see what company or PAC donated to which candidate and how much they gave. Example, the SlimFast company donated $6 million to Hillary Clinton's campaign. Because she's super addicted to that shit. The Campaign Act of 71 limited spendings on corporations and individuals. At this time, there was a lot of wealthy folks getting around the old laws. It also put limits on TV and radio ads. This was cool. Unfortunately, no one was in charge to oversee it. One year later, Watergate began. Not often talked about with Watergate was Nixon would extort money from corporations by weaponizing the IRS and threaten the corporations with audits. So, in 74, a new amendment passed through Congress that created the Federal Election Commission, the FEC, to oversee the election contributions and spendings, and to also restore faith in the government. Then, two years later, in 76, in the Supreme Court, we had Buckley v. Valeo. This ruling said spending limits violated the First Amendment, It said the current laws restrict the quality of campaign speeches by individuals, groups, and candidates, thus violating the First Amendment. The case was decided 7 to 1. This would be the first time you would hear the phrase, money is speech. This would undo most of the Act of 71. 26 years later. In 2002, the McCain-Feingold Act would restore a large portion of the Act of 71. Then finally, Citizens United in 2008 would again undo prior finance laws. A nonprofit conservative organization called Citizens United was releasing a movie called Hillary, the movie, which didn't put her in a favorable light during the 2008 primary. Citizens United was trying to release ads for the movie, but at the time was illegal to run those ads so close to an election because of the McCain-Feingold Act. Supreme Court ruled that this was unconstitutional. This case would actually overturn other cases, And essentially make it so corporations could run ads for or against a candidate anytime they please. This gave us another famous phrase, corporations are people. So our finance laws have suffered a death by a thousand paper cuts. Now, two phrases we need to talk about. Corporations are people, money is speech. The first one, courts basically define corporations as groups of people. So are corporations people? No. But are groups of people, people? Uh, Yeah, kinda. And honestly, even if this changed, it still won't prevent wealthy people from getting around the laws. In the phrase about money equaling equaling speech, there's two sides of this argument. As a voter, it's very tough for me to have my voice heard. Say I see Al Gore, and he's running for president, and I contribute $100 to him, and ask him to look into lowering interest rates on small business loans, it would really help the middle class. He says, okay. Then the next person in line is, uh, say, Bank of America, and they give him $100,000. Who do you think he's going to listen to? Free speech now comes at a cost and is no longer free. That's no good. Now, say I'm running against Al Gore, and he has $50 million and name recognition, and I have my life savings in my wallet, and I'm a nobody. It's going to require quite a bit of capital to make some noise and have my voice heard. Money isn't speech for the voter, but it is speech for the candidate. So you see the argument from both sides. I and mean, You may not like what I had to say, but I say these things so you understand what we're up against if you want to see change. The Supreme Court is not likely to change its mind on Citizens United anytime soon, as they don't have a tendency to reverse the decisions. So we're going to try and come up with a simpler solution. So here it is for the 17 listeners still with us. Here are the bullet points. What we want to do is focus less on the Supreme Court and more on a state-level change. We're already starting to see this in the 2018 midterm election. South Dakota, New Mexico, Florida, North Dakota, Arizona, and here in Massachusetts, to some degree, made changes in finance reform. What we need to do is come up with something that is easy to understand and easy sell. Finance reform on a headline isn't catching anyone's attention these days. So the simpler, the better. My suggestion would be to put a cap on total contributions and spendings of the candidate, and not on any particular group. This financial cap would be based on population. For example, if I were to run for president, I would only be able to receive $325 million based on the population of 325 million Americans. There's a little bit of fairness and symbolism. Or, if I'm running for senator in a state like Massachusetts, my cap would be set at $6.8 million based on the residents of that state. Any contributions would need to be approved by the candidate. Any ads produced by outside spenders would need to be approved by the candidate. And if the ad is accepted, the cost would count against the contribution cap. For the record, the cost of the 2016 election was around $2 billion. Number two, if money is going to equal speech, then we need to push for fair speech. That's what this idea is about. Free speech is hurting, Fair speech might be the best we're going to get. Number three. To simplify for an easy sell, we would call this the fair contribution cap. And to explain what it does to the average Joe like myself, it puts a cap on candidates just like they put caps on football and basketball teams. Number four. Lastly, the biggest one. Is to get this approved by just one state. Then the next one. This would be the same route advocates for gay marriage went. It was legal in 37 states by the time it went to the Supreme Court. It became a challenge if the Supreme Court wanted to change a majority of each state's constitution. With that being said, we're going to stop there because we only have three listeners left, and that is not enough at the moment to make something this big happen. But we'll revisit this in the future. For now, let's take this to our Twitter and Facebook page and see what you guys think. Again, what I'm trying to do is present at least a good idea, and hopefully, together, we can make it great. Final note, I talked earlier about the hierarchy of society. This whole bit clearly focuses on the top of that hierarchy, government. But it also lends itself to another piece on the hierarchy chain, war. We are in a war of ideas. But we need to pay attention, keep our focus on what's important, and stop letting big media be our weapon of mass distraction. Well, that's all I got today. We'll be back next week, where we're going to talk about poverty, baseball, Superman... And we're going to find God. If you like horror, heavy metal music, and nonsense chatter, check out my buddy's podcast, Vintage Burn. And make sure you like the Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter, Solving Problems and Starting New Ones podcast, at The Problem Show. And hit the subscribe button on wherever you're listening to this. I'd do it for you if you had a podcast.